The scripture reading for today's sermon will be from Matthew chapter 24. We'll be reading Matthew 24, 45 through 25, 12. Hear now God's word. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites in that place. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry. Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, And then those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Pray with me. Father God, Holy Spirit, again we pray, be with us as we come to your word and illuminate to our minds the meaning of the words that you have revealed to us. Help us to understand, Father, and may your word convict us, and may your word also transform us and give us the strength that we need to be able to live in conformity with everything that you have revealed here. Father, you tell us that you have given us already all things that pertain to life and godliness. And chief among those things are your living and active word. And so we pray that it would do its work as the double-edged sword that it is, and also as the healer, Father, to be able to cause us to live in righteousness and holiness for the sake of your glory. So be with us as we come to your word, and may the words of my mouth... May the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're going to wrap up this morning our month-long series here, studying Jesus' teachings to his disciples about the all-important subject of the end, the coming end of this dark and evil age that we're all living in, the coming end of this world that is groaning because it is under the curse of sin, 
this world that is not our home, Jesus says, this world in which we are just pilgrims and sojourners on our way to the better country, as the book of Hebrews says. Jesus teaches about the coming end of it all when He comes in final judgment against all sin and unrighteousness and corruption in this world. And He comes not only to put an end to it all, but to make all things new and give us an abiding eternal home in His presence, in His glory, in a new heavens, in a new earth where only righteousness dwells. Last week, especially if you'll remember with me in verses 36 to 44, Jesus started to bring all of His teaching about the end to a culmination. And He was exhorting His disciples, of course us included, to live our lives in regular readiness. Remember, in perpetual preparedness for the certainty of His future coming. And we saw that Doing that, being prepared, isn't something that happens automatically. Being prepared requires regularly preparing and living our lives constantly, daily, hourly, in light of the certain reality of His coming as He's revealed it in His Word. No one knows the day or the hour that He's going to come. That's what Jesus Himself says there in verse 36. And the reason He hasn't revealed to us the day or the hour is because if we did know exactly when He's coming, then the sin that remains in us would cause us to be spiritually lazy and lethargic during our lives in this world. We would wait until the very last minute to try to get ready for His return. But Jesus says that His return is going to come unexpectedly. Like a thief comes in the night, remember last week. If we knew for certain that a a thief was going to come and break into our house at exactly 3.30 in the morning, not 3.29, not 3.31, but exactly 3.30 in the morning, and that he wouldn't possibly come a minute before that, then what we would be tempted to do would be to go to sleep and set an alarm for 3.20, 3.25, wake up just in time to get prepared. Well, Jesus doesn't want us living our lives like that. He wants us to stay awake all night long. He wants us to be preparing all the time, all our lives, mortifying sin daily, growing in holiness daily, putting on the whole armor of God daily, being transformed by the renewing of our minds daily, regularly, progressively, increasingly, communing with Him in prayer daily, unceasingly, fellowshipping together and worshiping together with His body regularly so that the whole focus of our minds and the whole trajectory of our lives more and more is being driven by the certainty of His coming more than any other concern or priority of our lives or in this world. So that as the tribulation and pressure and temptation in this world already that's going to precede His coming, as all of that continues to build and increase, we will be increasingly prepared to endure it and to persevere until the very end when He comes to gather us all together and bring us home to the new heavens and the new earth. So today, Jesus is going to sharpen His focus on that same subject of preparedness even more by once again speaking in illustrations, in parables. 
Now, the ones that we saw last week, there were three of them. The illustration from the days of Noah, when people, remember, were, were, were too busy attending to the cares of this world, the, the daily concerns of daily life. There's nothing sinful about those things, but they were so focused on them that they weren't focused on Him, on God, and on His Word, and on His holiness, and on the fact of His coming judgment. And so they weren't prepared when it came. And then there was the picture of two people out in a field and one was taken away to judgment and the other was left. There was the picture of the thief in the night. All of those pictures portrayed people who weren't prepared for His coming because they never gave it a second thought. Their heads were so buried in the business of this world and the busyness of this world that they weren't looking to the eternal realities and being prepared for the coming of the One who will make those realities real when He arrives. So, eternity just didn't matter to those people at all that we were talking about last week. But Jesus doesn't just want to address people like that. He also wants to address those of us who do think about the reality of His coming, who do think about eternity, but still struggle in this world sometimes, oftentimes, and in our lives, to become distracted. We still struggle with with sluggishness in our lives, either because we've assumed that He's going to come later than He actually will come, or because we've assumed that He was going to come sooner, and we've put all our hope in that, and then when He's delayed beyond our expectations, we get lulled into distractedness or sluggishness. And that's the kind of thing that these parables today focus us on. There's one at the end of chapter 24, and there's another one at the beginning of chapter 25, and they go together. And as we focus on them, we need to make sure that we keep in mind the basics of what Jesus has already taught about, the certainty of His future coming. About the reality of His future coming. He's taught us that He will return, and He will return unexpectedly. No one knows the day or hour, and so we must be perpetually prepared. He's also taught us that He's going to return personally and bodily. He's not just going to send angels from heaven to come and get us. He Himself is coming, and they're coming with Him. And He won't just come in some some invisible, secret ethereal way he's coming in the same way that he left bodily visibly like he told his disciples he would at the beginning of the book of acts when he ascended into heaven on a cloud so will he return and it's not going to be any secret when he returns remember every eye will see him he says at the beginning of the book of revelation every ear is going to hear The voice of the archangel resound through the whole universe and the trumpet of God being blown when Jesus comes. It'll be unmistakable. And the whole universe will literally be shaken and shattered by the great glory and power of the coming of the Son of Man. And when He comes, He's going to raise the dead physically and bodily from the grave. And then He's going to judge the whole world And all of those human beings who have ever lived in this world, who have now been raised 
and made immortal and imperishable, all of them who don't know Him will be cast forever, body and soul, into everlasting condemnation. And all of those who do know Him, who have been saved from that eternal judgment by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, those He's going to gather unto Himself, body and soul, and welcome them into the presence of His glory in the new heavens and the new earth for all of eternity. And so all of eternity comes down to that. One way or the other way, nothing else matters. All of this is what God's revealed Word makes absolutely certain. He is coming. The end is coming and eternity is at stake. Are we prepared? And Jesus' point is, what else in this world, what else in our lives matters more than that? There's a lot of things that matter, but what matters more than that? What, what, What matters more than eternity? So in verses... 45 through 51 here at the end of Matthew chapter 24 this is the point that Jesus is driving home and he does it in this parable of faithful and unfaithful servants so as we think about preparedness and being perpetually prepared and regularly ready until the day of his coming until the very end Chief among the things that preparedness means is faithfulness to the Master while we wait for His return and and in a very specific way. This little parable is all about being unprepared for His coming because He came sooner than we assumed He would. We thought we had more time. The people in this parable thought they had more time. Thought they had time to burn. Thought they had time to do whatever they wanted to do and live however they wanted to live because the Master's not coming back for a long time and then when He comes back sooner than they thought, they're in big, big trouble. That's what this parable is about. People who are busying themselves more and more with their own concerns and their own desires and the things of this world than with the affairs of the kingdom of God. To be prepared means persistently preparing, and that means being consistently faithful stewards of the kingdom that Jesus has called us to serve. Who then, Jesus asked his disciples in verse 45, who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Jesus uses the word servant. And He doesn't just use it to illustrate. He uses it to define what it means to be His disciples. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you are a servant of His household. You are a servant of His kingdom. Now the word disciple in the New Testament basically just means a student. And the whole goal of a student is to become more like The teacher, to learn from the teacher, to become more like the teacher. And to become like Jesus is to become more and more a servant because servanthood is one of the chief attributes of our Lord and Savior. The Son of Man came here not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Those are Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 20 and verse 28. He's the King of all kings. He's the Lord of all lords. He's the master of all masters. 
If anyone is worthy to be served by everyone and by everything in the entire created order, it's the eternal almighty Son of God because He's the one by whom all things were made. And yet, He came here not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. He came in absolute fulfillment of the great prophecy of Isaiah 53 of the suffering servants. That's what He is. The one who would bear our griefs, the ones who would, who would carry our sorrows for us, who would be stricken and smitten and afflicted by God for us. That's who He is. The one who was pierced for our transgressions, the one who was crushed for our iniquities, the one who was chastised for our sins that we might know peace with God because by His wounds we are healed. That's the kind of servant He is and those are the kinds of sacrifices that He made. He willingly, for the joy set before Him, bore the awful burden of God's punishment for our sins. He bore that for us as our suffering servant. That's what He is. Becoming like Him means becoming like that. So there are two main words for a servant in the New Testament. One of them is the word diakonos, like a, like a deacon. Somebody who serves others. Somebody who meets the needs of others. To minister to others and tend to their needs and care for them is what that word diakonos means. So when, when the twelve disciples asked Jesus in Mark chapter 9, who is going to be the first in his kingdom? Which, which of us are you going to have to be the first in the kingdom? Jesus said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and the servant of all. So you see, in other words, the one who Jesus is most impressed with is the one who is most like Jesus. Specifically in this way, that they're not concerned with themselves. They're not concerned with their own needs nearly so much as they're concerned with the needs of others and meeting those needs even if it costs them a lot. Because that's how Jesus is. He's the one who's willing to make great personal sacrifice and to endure great loss for the sake of others. Paul's words in Philippians 2, right? Resound with that ethic, don't they? If we're Christians, if we're disciples of our Master, who was the great servant on the cross, then our lives ought to look like His in exactly that way. It looks like this, Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit pride. But in humility, count others more important than yourself. That's what it means to look like Jesus. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. And have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, because here's who he is. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So being like Jesus means 
being a servant like Jesus was and being a servant like Jesus is. A self-sacrificing minister who cares about meeting the needs of others more than we care about our own needs. That's what it means to be like Jesus, plain and simple. Because Jesus is willing to sacrifice for the sake of meeting the needs of others. And in Jesus' economy, it works like this. Jesus' calculus is that the greater the need of others, then the greater the sacrifice His loving servanthood is willing to make. He became obedient to the point of death. Even that horrific death that He endured on the cross because of the great need of our eternal souls. The greater the need, the greater the sacrifice that He's willing to make. That's what we need to be like. Now in that passage in Philippians 2, Paul doesn't use the word when he's talking about Jesus being a servant, he doesn't use that word diakonos. He uses the second word, which is most common, and that's the word doulos in Greek, which means a slave, a servant in relationship to a master, someone who, whose life is defined by submissiveness to the master's will and not a commitment to his own will. That's what the word doulos means. So the first word, diakonos, emphasizes the importance of being like Jesus and ministering to the needs of others. Being willing to consider their needs more important than our own. Being willing to meet other people's needs even at great cost to ourselves, especially when their needs are great. If we're servants like Jesus, great needs in others prompt great sacrifices in us. And the second word for servant is this word doulos, which, which emphasizes the, the relationship that exists between us and Christ as our Lord. Between us and God. Because Jesus is the eternal Son of God. And that relationship fundamentally demands the kind of sacrificial servanthood to others that Jesus himself models Because, of course, even though he came here not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, he never stopped being God. He never stopped being the Almighty Holy One who he is. He never stopped being the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So see, the one who was our great suffering servant on the cross is, at the same time, and always will be, the eternal Lord of our lives. Which means that we always and always must be servants of Him, our great Lord and our Master, by acting like He acted, by doing what He did. So the word doulos, slave, servant, signifies this position of submissiveness to Him that has to define everything about our lives in Him. And it's interesting, in Philippians 2, that Paul uses that word doulos to refer to Jesus. Those words or those verses that I I just read from Philippians 2 talk about how we should be like Jesus and considering the needs of others more important than our own and being willing to sacrifice for others like, like he did. But the word for that kind of sacrificial service is that word diakonos, deacon, minister, right? But that's not the word that Jesus is described by in Philippians 2. It's it's that other word, doulos, slave in relationship to a master. 
Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient, see? To the point of death on a cross. And he didn't become obedient to us, did he? He didn't put himself under us in relation, like, like we were his master. Who was he obedient to? He was obedient to the will of God the Father. In coming here to serve us and minister to our needs, diakonos, in coming here to sacrificially meet our needs, He was being submissive to His Father in heaven and the will of the Father over His own will. Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. As He came to serve us, He came as a servant of the Father, fully and, and indescribably, unimaginably humble in devotion to the eternal will of the Father to redeem us through the sacrificial death of the only begotten Son. Now, I hope I'm not confusing you with all that because I hope it makes some sense to you because, because this is how Jesus is describing things in the passage in Matthew 24. These two words in the New Testament for, for servant define how Jesus came not to be served but to serve us by giving Himself as a ransom for us, as a payment to the Holy God for our sins against God. In coming to serve us sacrificially, He came as a servant to the Father, bound by faithfulness, covenant faithfulness to the Father, to redeem us by suffering for us. And see, all of that defines what we are as Christians and in Him. It defines what our lives have to be like in Him as we wait for Him to return. So here He's saying in verse 45 of Matthew 24 that we need to be wise and faithful servants. And the word that He uses is the second one that I talked about, that word doulos, slaves. Not don't think of slaves with all the terrible connotations that come to mind in terms of uh, the modern world when we think about slavery. It's simply a description of our relationship to our God in recognition of His Lordship as the great Lord and God who He is. Our lives in Him must be characterized chiefly by submission to Him, obedience to Him, devotion to His will and not our own. In other words, Jesus is not the cosmic butler who lives up in heaven and exists and waits up there for us to ring a little bell so that He can come and do our bidding. He loves us. He delights to do good things for us. He delights to give good things to us, but He's not our butler to command around. We're not above Him as the Master. He's our Lord. He's our Master. He's our God, and we are His servants devoted by definition and by virtue of our relationship to Him as our God, devoted to His will, devoted to His service, devoted to His kingdom, devoted to His righteousness, not devoted to ourselves and our own desires and ambitions and wills. So how do we be faithful servants of His while we wait for His return? We do it by seeing to the affairs of His household, like He says here in verse 45. Feeding, 
those who belong to his household and tending to his possessions, like he says in verse 47, being stewards of what he has left us here in this world to see to. So what does that mean? What is the household of God? His church is the household of God. Paul says in the book of Ephesians to the Gentiles living in the city of Ephesus, you are fellow citizens with the saints and you are members of the household of God. People who are redeemed and saved by grace through faith are the household of God. His chosen people. What are the possessions of God in his household? It's his chosen people. Peter says, and he's speaking to suffering Christians who are scattered all around the Roman Empire, he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That's what we are. We're his possessions. In order that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And how do people come to be God's own choice possessions and members of the household of God. By being called out of darkness and into His marvelous light, by being saved from our sins and reconciled to God and delivered from the wrath of God that is to come. And how does that happen? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10, verse 13. Everyone, every single sinner in this dark, evil age, in this sin-cursed world who cries out to Jesus for salvation with genuine, living, saving faith, all of them will be saved eternally. And when He comes, all who have called on the name of the Lord will be gathered up by Him and ushered into that glorious presence of Him and His eternal blessings forever. But, Paul asks there in Romans 10, where he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, how are they going to do that? How are they going to call on Him in whom they've never believed? How are they going to believe in Him if they've never heard of Him? And how are they going to hear about Him without somebody telling them, preaching to them, Christ crucified? And how are they going to preach unless they're sent as His servants? See? That's what we are. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, the gospel. So how do we faithfully steward the kingdom of God's household and possessions until He returns? Chiefly, by preaching the gospel to the lost and perishing world. Michael and I were talking about this this past week in preparation for a sermon he's going to preach in a few weeks from 1 Peter 3, verse 15. Be prepared to make a defense of the hope that is within you to the lost and the dying world. And we were talking about the reality that this hope that is laid up before us in the new heavens and the new earth is going to include us being able to do every single thing almost in our lives better there than we can do here. We'll work better there. We'll serve God better there. We'll worship better there. Our lives will be unencumbered by sin and mortality and imperishability. So why are we still here? Why hasn't He taken us there yet where we can do every single thing better there? 
Because the one thing you can't do there that we can do here and must be doing here is preaching the gospel to the lost. Calling people by the power of God in the gospel out of darkness and into that marvelous light to repent of their sins, to come to Jesus and to be saved. So when Jesus says, blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes, that's what he means. When he comes, is he going to find us bearing witness to him and calling people out of darkness and into light? And we don't know when he's going to come, do we? Which is the very reason, like we saw last week, that we have to be perpetually preparing and being prepared in a state of regular readiness for his return. And if that means faithfully seeing to his household and possessions, faithfully preaching the gospel of salvation through faith in Christ alone, then, then we've got to be doing that regularly until he returns. And that's exactly what he's saying here. That preparedness, that readiness, necessarily means faithfulness as his servants to proclaiming the gospel of calling people out of darkness and into light. And our master's words in verses 48 through 51 are pretty sobering, are they not? But if the wicked servant, not the wise and faithful one, if the wicked servant says to himself, well, my master's delayed. He's not coming back for a long time. And begins to beat his fellow servants. And eats and drinks with drunkards. Lives like the world. The master of that servant will come on a day when he doesn't expect him. And at an hour when he doesn't not know. And he'll cut that wicked servant into pieces and put him with the hypocrites in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In contrast to the faithful and wise servant, the wicked and the foolish servant is the one who says, well, my master's delayed. I don't need to live according to his will. I don't need to be a servant of his right now. I, I, can, I can whoop it up here in the world and do whatever I want. It's been a long time since he left, says the wicked servant, and then he foolishly concludes it's going to be a long time until he comes. So he decides to pursue his own will instead of the will of the master. Right? This is like the unfaithful wife who doesn't think her husband's coming home yet from his business trip, but he comes home sooner than she thought and catches her with another man. And then there's all kinds of trouble. This is like the kid who doesn't think his parents are coming home until the next day, so he throws a big old party in their house only for them to show up early before he was expecting them to. And then there's all kinds of trouble. When the master of the household of God returns, what's he going to find us doing? Living like the world or faithfully tending to his possessions? Faithfully feeding people with the gospel and our own lives with his righteousness or neglecting all of that because we're more concerned with the things of the world and our own desires? more devoted to the pleasures of this age than with the kingdom and the righteousness of God. And worse still, what's really being described here in the wicked, wicked servant is those wicked servants who call themselves followers of Jesus and, and say that they're servants of Him and disciples of Him, but they end up abusing their fellow servants. And that analogy speaks 
to all of those who call themselves Christians and followers of Jesus, servants of the King and His kingdom, but, but they're just indulging in all of the wickedness and licentiousness in this world, and they're imbibing the fallen, godless spirit of the age in such a way that they end up leading other people astray into wickedness, into eternal harm. So, so what he's really talking about here are false teachers who peddle false gospels in the name of Christ. What he's really talking about here are those Christians and especially those people who stand in pulpits in Christ's church and end up saying that things are good which God says are evil. And, and they end up saying that things are evil which God says are good. And you know what I'm talking about. People who lead people astray into worldliness and godlessness in the name of Jesus. Those people are going to be in big trouble when the Master returns. We don't... We won't take the time to enumerate all the ways that that's going on today. In pulpits, in churches, all over the place. And how people are polluting the household of God and leading people away from Christ and straight into the jaws of destruction. And when Jesus comes, there will be no mercy for those kinds of wicked servants who, who, who perpetrate those perversions and those deceptions in the household of God. So in the parable of the servants, this is what he's doing. He's highlighting the danger of presuming that, that he's coming later than he purposes to return. So we, we, we fool ourselves into thinking we've got all this time to indulge in, in worldliness and, and ungodliness instead of serving him and his household. And he's highlighting the importance of faithfulness. Day by day by day, consistently until he returns. And then there's another parable at the beginning of chapter 25 where he's highlighting the other danger, the other side of the same coin of thinking that he's coming sooner than he actually purposes to and not taking the time to adequately prepare and then being caught unprepared when he does return. So look at this parable with me at the beginning of chapter 25. The setting of this parable is a wedding. And I probably don't need to tell you that ancient weddings worked differently than they do in the modern world. In ancient times, wedding day was an all-day affair. It started early in the morning with festivities and dancing at the groom's house, the bridegroom's house, early in the day, while the bride was at her house with her bridesmaids getting dressed and getting ready for the big ceremony of the wedding and a big feast that was going to happen in the evening. And so sometimes, see, in the late afternoon, while the bridegroom is at his house rejoicing and celebrating and the bride is getting ready, some point in the early, or, or I'm sorry, in the late afternoon or early evening, the bridegroom would leave his house and go all the way to the bride's house in order to, to get her and walk back with her to his house arm in arm in order for them to be married and then that would be followed by a big lavish feast afterward that would last late into the night. And at the time when the when the groom came to the bride's house to get her and escort her back to his house to marry her, he would take her and they would walk along with all of his attendants and all of her bridesmaids 
And they'd all be singing together through the streets of the city and cheering and hooping and hollering, making their way back to the groom's house in a big, grand, torch-lit procession. That was the custom of the day. All of the attendants would be carrying torches through the streets in honor of the bride and the groom. And then when they got to the house, everybody would would surround them with their torches and the wedding would take place and then the feast would take place late into the night. That was a typical wedding day in the ancient Middle Eastern world which Jesus and his disciples lived in. So picture all of that and here in this little parable there are ten young maidens. Your your translation says virgins. These are bridesmaids. They're young unmarried ladies who, because they were young and unmarried in that culture, would have certainly been virgins, even though that's not even true in our culture. But these young ladies were ten young bridesmaids, waiting for, with the bride, waiting for the broom, or the groom, the broom, waiting for the groom to come and bring his bride back home to marry her. And Jesus says in verse 2, five of these maidens were foolish, five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, their torches that they were going to use in the procession, they didn't bring any oil with them. But the wise had both lamps or torches and oil for their lamps. So the foolish ones, see, were only half prepared. They had lamps, they had torches to take on the procession, but they didn't have any oil for those lamps. And what good is a lamp without oil? It's useless. Right? You can't light it. The wise ones, though, had prepared and they had both lamps and oil to light their lamps with. So in this parable, Jesus goes on to say, verse 5, the, the bridegroom was, was delayed. He was, it was a long time in coming to get his bride. Just as Jesus has been a long time. It's been 2,000 years so far in coming. It was longer than they were expecting. So implicitly, there was actually lots of time for these foolish girls to go get the oil they would need when the bridegroom did come so that they'd be able to light their lamps and join the festal torch-lit procession when the bridegroom came. But they didn't do that. So they were doubly foolish, see? First of all, they should have brought oil with their lamps to begin with. They didn't do that. Then they should have gone out and gotten oil when the bridegroom delayed and gave them plenty of time to do it. But they didn't do that either. They waited and they waited and they waited. And when it took longer than they expected, they got sleepy. They became drowsy and they slept. And then verse 6, at midnight, much longer than they expected... There was a cry. He's coming. Somebody down the street finally sees the bridegroom with all of his attendants coming down the street to get the bride. He's coming. He's come out and meet him. It's time. He's here. Time to light the torches. Time to join the festal procession back to the bridegroom's house. But they'd been sleeping, these foolish maidens who neglected to bring oil in the first place and neglected to go out and get it while there was still time. Now he's coming and they've got no oil in their lamps to light their torches with in order to join the procession. So they try to get some from the wise maidens, right? Verse 8, give us some of yours. 
But the wise maidens knew that if they did that, then everyone's torches would burn out early in the middle of the procession before they got back to the groom's house, and that all of that would become a distraction that would dishonor the bride and the groom. So that's why the wise ones said in verse 9, we're not giving you any of our oil, not because they were greedy, but because they were wise. We don't want to dishonor the groom. So you got to go find a dealer to buy oil for yourself in the middle of the night. So that's what they did. They went out way too late in the game, these foolish maidens, to buy oil, hoping that they would be able to get the oil and then run back to the groom's house before, or join the procession before they got back to the groom's house so that they could join the wedding. But, but it didn't work that way. They, they were too late. They didn't have time. While they're out there scurrying around trying to find someone to sell them oil, at the last second in the middle of the night, good luck with that, the bridegroom returns, verse 10. Came for his bride. And the maidens who had oil for their lamps joined the festal torch-lit procession back to his house and went into the marriage feast. And verse 11, the door was closed behind them. So that when the foolish maidens finally got there, They're pounding on the door saying, hey, let us in, open the door. Lord, Lord, they said. Lord, Lord, open the door. But it was too late. He said to them, truly, I don't know you. Now listen, as you think about what all that means, there is another place in Matthew's gospel where Jesus says something Very, very similar to what he says here in verses 10 and 11. Here, the foolish maidens cry out to the bridegroom, Lord, Lord, open the door. And he says, I don't know you. In chapter 7 of this same gospel of Matthew, Jesus says this. In fact, turn there with me. Turn to to Matthew chapter 7. And look at verses 21 through 23. And this is not a parable that Jesus is saying here. This is just a straight up deal. But he's teaching the same thing. And these are some of the most sobering words in the Bible. Look at Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Same thing as the maiden said, right? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God. Of heaven, not enough to call yourself a follower of the Master. Not enough to just be a nominal Christian by name. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but the one who does the will of my Father, the one who is a doulos, the one who is a servant, the one whose life is lived in submission to the will of the Father who is in heaven, will enter in. Jesus says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. And then they'll point to stuff they did. Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? That's pretty impressive, right? Show up at the bridegroom's house and go, hey, I cast out a bunch of demons. Surely that gets me a ticket inside, right? Did many mighty works in your name, but he will declare to them, I... Never knew you. Depart from me. Go away. 
you workers of lawlessness. Didn't matter what they did. What matters is, do they know him? Are they his servants? So it's the same message, see? The foolish maidens had lamps with no oil. Useless. Well, these guys had works with no love and devotion to God. Useless. The foolish maidens waited until way too late to do anything about the fact that they had no oil. And then said, Lord, Lord, open the door only to hear him say, I don't know you. And in Matthew 7, there's going to be many people, Jesus says, who are going to say, Lord, Lord, and then point to all kinds of stuff they did only to hear him say, go away, I never knew you. Because the only ones who will enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, are those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. And the verb in that statement, to do, those who do the will of my Father, is a present active participle. Those who are doing, as the course of your life, the will of my Father who is in heaven, as a regular, consistent, ongoing pattern of life, as a doulos, as a servant of God, whose lives are defined, not perfectly, but essentially, by this relationship to God as their master. Is that how your life is defined? I know it doesn't exist that way perfectly. Because nobody's does mine either. But do you see yourself as the doulos of God? And is your life devoted more and more and more to trying harder and harder by His grace and the strength with which He strengthens you to living for His glory and doing His will and not your own in this world? Is that how your life is defined? Submissiveness to His will and not your own, laying aside your own needs and cares in order to seek first His kingdom and righteousness as your greatest priority. That's the oil, see? That's the oil. The loving, grateful, humble, submissive devotion to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It's not about, I've got a bunch of outward works I can point to. It's not about, well, I read my Bible eight hours a day, seven days a week. It's not about, I went to every church service there was. It's not about how many books you have on your bookshelf. It's not about any of that. It's about, are you the servant of God who lovingly, humbly serves his kingdom? Because it's out of that, that's the oil. It's out of that, that the flame of any kind of good deeds is going to come. Otherwise, it's just an empty shell, right? Some people, many people, they just have the lamp, the torch, but they don't have any oil. They've just got a facade of righteousness. They've just got this outside of the cup kind of formalism, which is what characterized the Pharisees, right? That kind of religiosity that thinks that the entrance into the kingdom can be obtained by doing all kinds of the right things on the outside without any faithful, loving, humble devotion to God on the inside. That's as useless as a lamp with no oil. And that's what these people that Jesus is describing here in chapter 7 of Matthew's Gospel are like. We did all the right stuff. Problem is, none of that stuff was fueled by a love and devotion to Christ as humble, loving, loyal servants.
It's not about what you do, it's what you are. By grace alone, through faith alone. And so, here in in verse 7, even if they try to say, or chapter 7 here, if they try to say to him on that day when he comes, Lord, Lord, and then point to themselves and the stuff that they did, he'll say, that doesn't matter because what matters is I never knew you. You were never my servant. You didn't love me. You didn't honor me. You didn't do it for my glory. All they had was an outside-of-the-cup religiosity, just an empty torch, not a loving devotion to him that flamed with a passionate service to his will, fueled by faith in his loving service to them on the cross. Whatever oil they had was purchased by their own merit and not by his. So in the end, here's what it all means. Based on everything that our loving Lord and our bridegroom says, being prepared for his coming all comes down, according to Jesus himself, to knowing him, to being rightly related to him, to not seeing him as the butler, but understanding ourselves to be the servants of him who served us by laying down his life for us in order to reconcile us to God. So it means being saved by grace through faith in him. And it means that saving faith is that kind of faith which causes us to turn from seeing our lives as our own to seeing him, not only as our blessed Savior, but as our sovereign Lord. And to living by his life-giving grace, more and more to living in humble self-forsaking devotion to his will and not my own. You'll never do it perfectly. It's going to have to grow like an oak tree grows from a very, very small acorn that, that gives a little sprout and then over a long time becomes a big, mighty oak. That's what the Christian life is like. John Newton says it's like that and not like a mushroom. Sometimes in the evening I'm looking out on my lawn and then I go to bed and I wake up and in the morning there's a big old mushroom that wasn't there the night before. It grew up fast. That's not how the Christian life works. It's it's like an acorn that becomes a big, strong, mighty oak tree as our lives are more and more defined by what we are in Christ and devoted more and more humbly to forsaking self and living for his will and his kingdom and his righteousness as his servants. And that means preparing for the all-certain reality of his return by seeking his kingdom and righteousness first as the overarching priority of our lives. Not as extracurricular activity. Not as a side interest. Living as his bondservant, devoted to his kingdom, his household, his possession, his church, his people, his will... To call people out of darkness and into light. To preach the gospel so that other people might come to know him too. And be delivered from his wrath and gathered as his own when he comes. Are you prepared for his return? Look, it's not about just doing a bunch of things and making sure you're doing a bunch of things. It's about cultivating a loving, humble, grateful devotion to him who loved you. And gave himself up for you. And out of that grateful, loving, humble devotion, it's about becoming more and more a faithful servant of his. More and more a watchful steward 
of his household. That's what it means to know him. That's what it means to be known by him. So that when he returns, he won't say, you got a bunch of stuff you did, but I don't know you. Instead, he'll say, even though you didn't do it all perfectly, you're saved by the grace of my son. And you lived by that grace and growing devotion to me. Well done, good and faithful servant. Now enter in to my rest. Eternal rest, everlasting rest in the presence of the glory of the one who was obedient to his father even unto the cross where he crushed the curse of death for us in order to make us his forever. Do you know him? Do you know his grace? And is it defining more and more in your life a loving devotion to his service? Let's pray together. Our God and Father, how grateful we are for making it clear to us that we must know you and understand ourselves in right relationship with you. And especially, Father, how grateful we are that that relationship is not defined by a bunch of stuff we did or could ever do. It's defined by what Jesus did for us in order to wash us and cleanse us and forgive us and give us daily the grace that we need and the oil for the lamps that that we need to be able to live in growing devotion and service to you. So, Father, fuel us with your grace. Fuel us with your word. Fill us with the joy of the Lord that is our strength. Fill us with love because you first loved us. Fill us with humility, Father, because Christ was humble to serve us. Fill us with gratitude for all that you are and all that you've done and all that you do and will do in order to come for us as your bride. And so, Father, may we serve you. May we be strengthened in the strength of Christ to serve you and honor you until he returns. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.